Uh, excited that you're here this morning. I'm thinking about today and just kind of how hard of a day it is because I sit here and I just reflect this morning on how faithful God has been to me. Uh, ever since I was in eighth grade, I just thought, man, like I was terrified of what God was calling me to do because I knew God wanted me to be a youth pastor and I had these big dreams of maybe playing football or doing something like that. Uh, and my dreams began to change and, and my dreams were just like this. And today I stand before you, I'm just living out my dream. And what a privilege that is. I don't deserve that uh, in any way, shape or form. I'm excited for the sermon this morning. We're continuing this series titled The Untouchables, and I've really enjoyed the last few weeks as we've done this because I enjoy talking about stuff that we don't normally talk about in church. And so this morning's topic that we're talking about is social media and technology, and I'm really, really excited. Now, I hope that most of you have a phone. I assume most of you do. Uh, I have a smartphone. I think most of you probably do. There's a lot of good things about smartphones. Uh, For example, I have five text messages from my mom right now. I don't know why she's texting me. She knows I'm preaching. Like, she knows I'm doing this. Um, The Bible app, right? Like, that's a great thing about our phones. We can connect to the Bible on our phones. Uh, There's a lot of students that send me maybe their Bible reading plan. They want me to uh, read and kind of keep track of what they're doing and stuff like that. And that's a pretty cool thing. If you're maybe new to following Jesus or you're new to church, I would encourage you to check out the Bible app because it is a great way just to connect with people. Uh, another app that I like to use on my phone is FaceTime. All right, some of y'all use FaceTime. Uh, I know grandparents FaceTime their grandkids, especially during the last few months, if you haven't been able to get out or whatever. Uh, my wife, she likes to FaceTime me instead of calling me. It's kind of a strange thing, but we'll go with it. And she always does that. I don't know why. She's not here this morning, so I can kind of bash her a little bit. No, I'm just playing. Uh, but she always FaceTimes me instead of calls me. She uses this app called Duolingo. Like some of you maybe heard of it, and she's learning Russian on her phone. Like she's done 100 state, straight days of Russian lessons. Like that's kind of insane. Uh, the thing I think I love most about my phone is I use online banking. Like I can't remember a time in my life where I ever went to a bank and cashed a check. Like I don't think I've ever done that. I've always just taken a picture of the check. Uh, you can do crazy things like buy and sell stocks directly from your phone. Uh, you can do all sorts of things with banking. You can send people money through PayPal and Venmo, and it's pretty incredible all the different things that you can do. The last thing that I really love about my phone is I have this exercise app on my phone, and it's helped me get in better shape uh, during the quarantine. My sister texted me. Like, when people quit texting me, y'all, like, it's, my, it's the sermon, right? We're not supposed to be on our phones. But I use this app, and it helps me with exercise. I have these people that just yell at me while I'm running or uh, biking or whatever. And it's been helpful to me the last few months to lose weight and just to get in better shape. Now, there's a lot of great things about our phones. Like, I don't know what you think about when you think of maybe your favorite app. There's probably something that comes to mind, but there's a lot of great benefits. But there's also a lot of great dangers. There's also a lot of great dangers. I, I never owned a phone that didn't have the ability to connect to the internet. I'm 23 years old. I've never had a phone that I couldn't connect to the internet. Uh, I don't remember a time in my life where my parents didn't have a cell phone. Uh, I think about the iPhone. Some of you guys have an iPhone. The iPhone came out when I was 10 years old. I've kind of been surrounded by some of this stuff, and I've seen some of the dangers of it. Uh, I had a middle school boy this week uh, that I went to eat lunch with, and he was telling me that in his small group time, the question was asked, what's the one thing that's getting in the way of you truly following Jesus? And he said, every single boy in the small group said, it's my phone. My phone is getting in the way of me truly following Jesus. In 2010, there was a man named Steve Jobs. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, recently passed away a few years ago, but the, the founder of Apple. And he was on a stage maybe kind of similar to this, and he was holding up this new device. And this device had the ability to do things like check your email, connect to the internet, 
Uh, you could download games on it. You could even do text messaging. He was introducing the iPad, and he made this statement. He said, every person in the world should own an iPad. A reporter came up to him a few hours later and asked Steve Jobs, she said, hey, Steve, how often do your kids use their iPads? And he said, my kids have never owned one. My kids have never owned one. Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, uh, also big on Xbox, he, uh, he was asked a question by a reporter kind of similar, how often do your kids use their Xbox? And he said, they don't use it anymore because I took it away from them. He went on to say that he was uh, somebody that has strict rules for his kids on cell phones. He reluctantly gave his kid a cell phone when she was 14 years old. And so the question that I want to ask us this morning is not necessarily, are you using technology? But the question I want to ask you, is technology using you? Is technology using you? Is technology the master over you? Or are you mastering technology? So we're going to study this morning in Mark chapter 10. If you have a Bible, uh, you can just scroll open on your phone, because we all know we have the Bible on our phone. We have that capability. Most of you probably didn't bring a paper Bible. Uh, That's fine. But I want to talk to you about a guy this morning that you're probably familiar with, the rich young ruler, and how he wanted to follow Jesus, but he just had something getting in the way. And so Mark chapter 10 I'm going to start reading in verse 17. It says this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says this. Why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything that you have and give to the poor because you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell because he went away sad. Uh, And then on on next in the passage, there's that famous verse uh, where Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This story isn't about smartphones. It's not about technology, but I do think there's a lot of things that connect and that relate. When I think about the rich young ruler, uh, his, his story is mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, it's mentioned in three different accounts. And so it tells me that it's an important story. And I'm kind of thinking, who is this guy? Like, who is the rich young ruler? Well, this would have been the Tim Tebow of the first century. He would have been somebody that everybody knew because of his faith. He would have been somebody that everybody knew because he was pretty religious. That's who this guy would have been. The disciples would have known him, Jesus would have known him, and everybody would have known this man. And he does a couple of different things. The first thing that he does is he goes to the right person. He wants this everlasting life. He wants what Jesus has to offer him, and so he's going to the right person to get it. Uh, In 1 John chapter 5, it says that Jesus is everlasting life. So he goes to the right person. The second thing that he does is he asks the right question. He asks the right question. He asks this question, he says, what do, I need, or what do I need to do to have eternal life? In other words, what do I need to do to experience the kingdom of God? And it even says that he runs to Jesus, which was a pretty radical thing. Because men in the first century, they didn't run. They had these long robes, and so it's kind of like you didn't want to trip over your robe. Uh, but this guy runs to Jesus, and not only does he do that, but he actually bows. He comes with the right attitude. He comes with this posture of humility. And he comes to Jesus, and it's almost like he's doing this baseball slide 
where he's running up to Jesus and he slides on his knees. He says, Jesus, what do I need to do to have this eternal life that only you can offer? But here's the problem. Here's the problem. He comes with the wrong heart condition. He comes with the wrong heart condition. He wants the benefits of the kingdom of God, but he doesn't want the king. He doesn't want the king. He doesn't want Jesus. In verse 26, I love what the disciples say. They say, who then can be saved? Like, Jesus, if this guy can't be saved, if he's not getting in, then nobody's getting in. Because this guy was religious. He looked the part on the outside. He did everything right. Here's what it shows us. You can do everything right. You can come to church on Sunday. You can serve on the worship team. You can maybe serve on the greeting team. You can be in, in a small group. You might even be able to give a couple dollars to the church, and you can still miss out on Jesus because your heart's in the wrong spot. It's a sad reality, but that's what happens to this man. In verse 17, he, he asks this question. What must I do to have eternal life? In other words, what must I do to be saved? You see, the eternal life that he wants, it's not just something that he wants someday when he dies. It's something that he wants now. He wants the benefits of the kingdom of God today. He wants to experience joy in his life. He wants to experience purpose in his life. He wants to experience meaning. He wants to have a life that's not just consumed with money, but, but he wants something more out of life. And I'm afraid for us, we're going to be like him. For him, it was his money. But I'm afraid for us, it's going to be this. This is going to be the thing, just like the eighth grade boy said. This is going to be the thing that's getting in the way of us truly following Jesus. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss Jesus. But I'm afraid that's where a lot of us are headed. You see, when you ask this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the same question I want to ask you this morning. Because for a lot of us, I think we would say something along the lines of, have faith. Trust God. Go and be baptized. Do those things and you're good. But Jesus doesn't say any of that. Jesus never tells them to have faith. Jesus doesn't tell them to be baptized. Jesus doesn't tell them to trust him. What does Jesus say? He says, go sell everything that you have. Don't give it to me because I don't need your stuff. He says, give it to the poor. <laughs> go sell everything that you have and give to the poor, a.k.a. he wants the man to repent. For us this morning, the reason that maybe some of us don't see God is because we're headed on this path of destruction, and in order to see God, we have to turn from our sin. And that's the same thing with this guy. He has to be willing to turn around, and he has to be willing to do that if he ever wants to trust God. And I think this morning, when I'm reading this passage, when I'm thinking about this passage, this passage is all about money. But I don't really think that Jesus isn't saying you shouldn't have money. I think he's saying that money shouldn't have you. And I think with technology, with this, I don't think that Jesus would tell you this morning, don't have a smartphone. I think he would say, make sure your smartphone doesn't have you. So this morning, there's five dangers of technology uh, that I've noticed. I have kind of a unique position because I get to hang out with uh, students all week and kind of see some of the stuff that they experience. And these are some of the things that I think I've learned just from being around uh, students. And so I want to give you five dangers of technology. The first one is this. Technology consumes your time. It consumes your time. And I would go even further to say it's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says to live in a way that makes the most of every opportunity. I think the Bible points to this idea that we are to live an efficient and purposeful life. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial to me. I have the right to be on this. I have the right to get Facebook. I have the right to do some of these things, but it may not be beneficial to me. It may not be beneficial. Uh, I was talking to some of our students this week, 
If you have this on your phone, uh, if you have an iPhone, you can get screen time. All right, it's in your settings. Uh, if you swipe, you can search screen time. You can pull it up. And it tells you exactly how long you've been on your phone each day. And so I don't know about you guys, but I maybe assumed like, oh, I probably spent an hour on my phone each day. Like I wasn't really sure. And I checked it and I was pretty disappointed. I'm not telling you, all right? I'm too convicted. I'm not telling you. But I asked one of our students this week, uh, she's a high school girl, and I asked her, I said, hey, what's your screen time looking like? And she told me, she said, it's five and a half hours per day. Five and a half hours per day. And I thought that was bad, but a middle school girl came up to me this morning and said, hey, mine's at six and a half hours per day. Six and a half hours on a smartphone. The average person in this room will probably spend somewhere between three and three and a half hours per day on their phone. Now, that may sound like a lot. I, I kind of feel like that's a lot. Uh, over a course of a week, that's about 21 hours. Over the course of a year, that's 45 days. And over the course of your lifetime, most of the people in this room will spend somewhere from eight to 10 years of their lives looking down at a phone. It's pretty sad. But it's even worse for the next generation. Because some of these students, if they get a phone when they're 10 years old, and some of them are getting it even before that, for some of these students, they're probably going to spend about 15 years of their lives looking at a screen. And I think about that, and it's like, man, how is that what God desires for us? And I'm in the same boat. I'm not exempt from this. How is that what God desires for us? Imagine if you took that time for something else. Imagine if you, you didn't put down your phone for three hours. Imagine if you just took 30 minutes off your screen time. Imagine how much more time you'd have for discipleship, for making disciples, for living out God's great commission for us. Imagine how much time you'd have for your family. Imagine how much time you'd have to eat dinner together. Imagine how much time you'd have for exercise, for working out, or for just doing something that you enjoy. Imagine what you could do for an extra 30 minutes a day. Imagine what God would do in our church. Imagine what, what God would do if we spent 30 minutes in prayer, 30 minutes in Bible study. Imagine what God could do. First danger, it's a waste of time. The second danger is this. There's a temptation to be someone that you're not. This is specifically in the context of social media. Uh, I think there's a big temptation for us to be somebody that we're not. Uh, this was kind of the problem with the rich young ruler. He was somebody that looked really good on the outside, but his inside wasn't right. And I think a lot of us probably have that same temptation. Uh, in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, don't conform to what the world tells you you need to be like. Don't conform to what the world tells you you need to look like. Uh, I worked for this insurance company a few years ago. Uh, it's a company that you've probably all heard of. And one of the things that I would do is I would call these people on the phone. I'd give them an insurance quote uh, on their car insurance. And then I would go meet with them. I'd schedule an appointment. Now, the problem was that a lot of these people were kind of spread out all over Louisville. Uh, I had some people that I would go meet with in Indiana. And so I'd go meet with these people at Starbucks, McDonald's, different coffee shops, just kind of wherever I could find a table to meet with these people. The problem was I didn't know what they looked like. And so I was meeting people that I'd never met before. I just knew their voice and their name. And so what do you think I do? I look them up on Facebook. And that sounds kind of bad, but y'all do it too. All right, let's just be honest. Everybody, do, everybody does it. So you'd see them on Facebook, and you think, okay, this is who I'm going to go meet with. You get there in person. They look nothing like their Facebook profile picture. They look nothing like their Facebook profile picture. They look better in Facebook. Their, their hair's nicer. Their clothes are nicer. They may even look 10 to 15 pounds lighter. Like, everybody looks better on Facebook. And I think for us <laughs> and for these students, something that's alarmed me this week, over half the pictures posted on social media have been edited or altered in some sort of way. They're not real. 
It's not genuine. Uh, Studies show that the more that you post on social media, the more insecure you are about yourself. And so if you see someone on social media and think, man, I wish I had that life. Their life looks so good. (laughs) Their family looks so perfect. It's probably not. It's probably not. And they're probably looking at you thinking the same thing. Because social media gives us this temptation to be somebody that we're not. It gives us the opportunity to show our best self and hide our worst self. The third danger of technology and social media is this. The ability to have things seen by the world. Arguably the most valuable thing that you have is your ability to influence others. And it's something worth protecting. There was a guy a couple years ago in 2016... His name is Laramie Tunsil, and he was a football player. He's a big-time college uh, football player, and he was projected to be a top-three pick in the NFL draft. Uh, he played offensive tackle, really big guy, uh, really athletic. And so I remember watching the draft in 2016, and it's maybe 20, 25 minutes before the draft, and there's this picture that shows up on his social media page. And his social media had been hacked. His Twitter had been hacked. And there was a picture that appeared of him in a gas mask uh, doing some sort of drugs. And so 25 minutes before the draft, this happens. That's what everybody's talking about. He's supposed to be the number three pick. Uh, The number three pick comes around. It's not him. Number five pick comes around. Laramie Tunsil's still on the board. Number seven, number nine, number 10. He gets drafted number 13 overall by the Miami Dolphins. And it doesn't sound like a big deal because he was still drafted. But that picture that was posted of him on his social media page cost him $8 million. It cost him $8 million all because of a picture that was shared on his social media page. The picture essentially destroyed his character. You see, the stuff that we put out there is for the world to see, and that may be a good thing, but that also may be a terrible thing. And that also may scare you a little bit because the stuff we post is either going to honor Jesus or it's not. Which brings us to our fourth point, the opportunity to point people to someone or something other than Jesus. The opportunity to point people to someone or something other than Jesus. I think about why do we post pictures on social media? Like, why do I need everybody to know exactly what I'm doing? I'm pretty sure when Facebook came, came out, uh, if you were to do a, like a status, the question it would ask you is, what are you doing? What are you doing? Or what are you up to? And people would just write, this is what I'm doing. I'm making breakfast. Like, I don't care if you're making breakfast. Like, why would you care if I'm making breakfast, right? And so the, the stuff that we do, we post it on social media. And I think about some of the stuff that we post, and the reason that we post stuff is because we want likes. We want interaction. We want to be seen by the world. We want people to notice us. There's this chemical in our brain called dopamine. Uh, Maybe you've heard of it, and I know if you've uh, maybe worked with anybody who struggles with drug addiction, you've you've heard of dopamine. It's released whenever you do cocaine, and it's pretty severe. And on a much smaller scale, the same thing happens when you post something on social media and you get a like or a comment. The dopamine in your brain is released, and it's addicting. That's why when you look at your social media and when you post something, you get all these likes, you get notifications, you really enjoy it. It's like the best moment in your life. Why? Because the dopamine is being released to your brain. I debated on sharing this or even saying this, but why do we post political stuff on Facebook? Why are we posting stuff about who we're voting for? (laughs) Why are we posting about Donald Trump, and why are we posting about Andy Bashir? I'm afraid that people will think that they are our Savior, that Donald Trump is your Savior or Andy Bashir is your Savior, when in reality, we're supposed to be pointing people to Jesus. All I see on Facebook is people posting about coronavirus, and I see people freaking out, and I get it. I know you're afraid, but it's like, man, we're supposed to be people with hope. 
We're supposed to be people with hope. And look at the way that people are going to view us. We have to be willing to protect our influence. We have to be willing to protect the name of Jesus. Because for some people, all they're going to know about Jesus is based on what you post on social media and what I post on social media. And so it's dangerous. we got to be careful. I think one of the most uh, ignored verses in the Bible is 1 Thessalonians 4.11. It says, make it your aim to live a quiet life. Make it your aim to live a quiet life. I don't have to constantly be putting myself out there. I don't have to constantly be telling people, hey, this is what I'm doing. Look at me. Look at this. Look at how good I am. I think about people that, you know, I've done this before too. We post on our vacation. We post when we go out to a fancy meal. We post these things because we want to be seen. But the reality is we can't be in the moment if we're constantly trying to capture the moment. If we're constantly trying to capture the moment of ourselves on vacation, if we're constantly trying to to capture the moment on this date we went on with our spouse, if we're constantly trying to do these things, we can't be in the moment because we're constantly trying to capture the moment. Here's the last danger of technology. There's a temptation to be distracted from what matters most. What matters most to you? Hopefully it's your relationship with God. Uh, Maybe you're here this morning, you're kind of skeptical of God. You may be watching online, you're kind of skeptical. Uh, And maybe that's your family, maybe it's a friend uh, that you have, or maybe that's your job or whatever. But I think with technology and with these, there's a temptation to be distracted from what matters most in our lives. I don't want to spend 10 years of my life on my phone. I think about some of these parents and how hard it must be for you. Uh, If you have maybe teenagers or kids that are about to be teenagers, I can't imagine how hard that is for you. And I'm often asked, you know, what age should I give my kid a cell phone? What, what age do you want your kid to be exposed to pornography? At what age do you want your kid to be addicted to TikTok? At what age do you want your kid to be addicted to Fortnite? At what age do you want your kid to feel like, I have to be like everybody else on Instagram. I have to compete with all these girls. I have to compete with all these guys. I have to put my best self out there. At what age do you want your kid to be distracted from what matters most? At what age do you want your kid to be distracted from their relationship with God? Because that's the reality for us this morning. That we're going, to be, we're going to be in positions, we're going to be in spots where we're tempted to be distracted from what matters most. And I think about this story this morning, I can't help but think about the rich young ruler and think, man, that's us. That's us. Not so much because we have money, even though most of us do. The reason we're like the rich young ruler is because we all have things that are getting in the way of us truly following Jesus. And I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss Jesus. I'll close with this. There's a miracle that Jesus does in Matthew chapter 14. He does two separate miracles. And I remember reading this uh, over various points in my life, and I missed an important detail of it. Uh, The first miracle that Jesus does, it's one you're familiar with, he feeds the 5,000 people. He takes the boys' lunch, and he feeds somewhere actually between 10 to 12,000 people, if you include women and children. And so he feeds all these people. Incredible miracle. The second miracle he does in Matthew 14 as he goes and he walks on water and he calms the storm. But there's something that I missed in between those two miracles. Because I think about what Jesus is doing. I think about that first miracle and think, man, Jesus, what an incredible influence you had. Like you had 10 to 12,000 people that you could have influenced at that very moment. Here's what it says in Matthew 14, 22 through 23. It said, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. Here's the part that I missed. 
Jesus has this incredible miracle that he's doing. He has the opportunity to minister to tens of thousands of people. Kind of similar to what we have on our phones. We have the opportunity to minister to all these people. But here's what Jesus does. He pushes the crowd to the side. He says, disciples, hey, go over here. He takes the crowd, gets rid of them, and he goes and spends eight hours in prayer. Here's what Jesus has been teaching me, and here's what God's been teaching me the last few months of my life, that sometimes what I need to do is I need to be willing to disconnect from the world in order to connect with God. I have to be willing to disconnect from everything going on around me. I know there's important stuff on my phone. I know there's going to be stuff happening on Facebook. I know there's going to be people that want to get in touch with me. I know that. But if I don't want to be distracted from my relationship with God, I have to be willing to disconnect from the world. And I don't know about you guys this morning, but I don't want to miss Jesus. I don't want to miss Jesus. I don't want to miss leading my family. I don't want to miss making disciples. I don't want to be, miss being the best student pastor I can be. I don't want to miss being the best man I can be. I don't want to miss being the best husband I can be because I'm so focused on my phone. But I'm afraid for us and for myself that a lot of times that's what's going to happen. We're going to miss it. We're going to miss it. And this morning we have a unique opportunity because we get to take communion. Uh, and we get to remove maybe some of these distractions that we have in our lives. And so if you have your communion, uh, I would encourage you to take it out. If you don't have one, just lift up your hand. We'll have somebody get one to you. Uh, we take the bread. It just represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. Uh, the Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So if you would, take the bread. And then we take the juice. In the Old Testament, they would kill a Passover lamb and they smeared the blood on their doorposts. In the New Testament, fast forward, Jesus Christ, the innocent Passover lamb, innocently killed, and his blood is not smeared on the doorposts of our homes, but his blood is smeared on the doorposts of our hearts. And so this morning we take the juice, which represents the blood of Christ. Let's pray. God, what a unique challenge we face in the 21st century that we have so many things that distract us from truly following you. Uh, But if I'm being honest, God, I know that it's always been that way. There's always going to be things that pop up. There's always going to be things that come up. And this morning, God, I'm praying a special prayer, not only over all the people here, but over myself, God. We don't want to miss you. We don't want to miss Jesus because we're so focused on something else. God, I pray this morning for the people here. Would we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.